Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health presented the most comprehensive oral argument the Supreme Court has heard on abortion, covering a spectrum of abortion issues, including stare decisis, the undue burden standards viability line, women's social reliance upon abortion, the distorted legal history of abortion, federalism, and the impact of safe haven laws. This case is primed to overrule Roe versus Wade and nearly 50 years of a federal constitutional travesty that manufactured a woman's right to abort her unborn child. Instead of speaking in vague general terms, today we will break down each of the Supreme Court justices' arguments and questions presented on December 1st. We are joined today by Carolyn McDonnell, staff counsel for AUL. She focuses on amicus briefs, federal legislative affairs, and international advocacy for the human right to life. Carolyn joined our team in 2021, so we are excited to kick off the new year reflecting on lessons from this year and casting vision for the future. I'm Anna-Claire Noblet, and you're listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Good. How are you doing, Anna Claire? I am fine and excited to wrap up season 12 with Tom Shakely. It's amazing, Anna Claire. It's been, uh, it's been a fast, fast fall. So many good episodes. Thrilled to join you again today, of course, and also thrilled to have Carolyn McDonald on for the first time since Carolyn's joined Americans United for Life. Yeah, she really has been an incredible asset already. I mean, if you just look at our website, she is all over it. And <laughs> she has been working really, really hard to provide some great recaps of what's been happening in the life movement, um, state level, federal level, international level even. Um, so we, we want to jump in to one of those articles, actually. But first, Caroline, just tell us a little bit, tell us a little bit about your journey to AUL. How'd you get here? Wonderful. Yeah, so I actually recently graduated law school in May 2021. I went to the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis, and there I was heavily involved with their pro-life center and was actually able to help Professor Teresa Collette as she wrote amicus briefs in pro-life cases and engaged in other pro-life work. And I think that really just paved the path for me to then um, come work at Americans United for Life and continue this pro-life journey for myself. That's amazing. How long have you considered yourself pro-life? I mean, I've definitely been pro-life my entire life, but I think it was only in the past few years of when I went to law school that I realized that I wanted to make a career out of this, that it was something that I loved and I was very passionate about. Awesome. Well, we're so glad to have you part of the team. Um, It's been an exciting fall already. So um, tell us a little bit about specifically the Dobbs case and, you know, where were you on December 1st? What was your role? On December 1st, I was actually on the courthouse steps. I was able to go to the rally. Um, Tom was there as well. And it was very inspiring to see just such a great turnout for the pro-life movement on the courthouse steps. We had people come in from across the countries. We had pro-life speakers speaking for about four hours there. And it it was great. And we just had such a wonderful sense of solidarity there as we were just encouraging the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. Wow. 
That sounds that sounds like such a memorable experience. Definitely going to be a highlight of your your 2021 as you look back. It's incredible. You know, Carolyn, I was amazed. I think it was the Washington Post, among others. But I mean, especially the Washington Post, it was great to see they covered that Dobbs rally. Right. And they admitted in their reporting to their credit that the uh, size of the rallies, you know, at, at events like that, when there are oral arguments, there's a pro and a con usually for every case. And in the case of Dobbs, you know, there were folks out there who were pro-abortion and they were rallying uh, on a portion of the steps. And there were uh, folks who were pro-life who were rallying on a portion of the steps. And the Washington Post reported uh, on the reality, which was the pro-life attendance was incredible, wasn't it? It was was way, way outstripping the the pro-abortion folks and I think surprised a lot of people. Yeah, I believe the article you're referencing actually said that we had like three to four times the amount of individuals that the pro-choice side had. Right. So it, it was great. And it was neat to see the diversity on the pro-life side as well. We had people, again, from across the country, from all different walks of life. We, of course, had like different faiths and religious um, individuals, but we also had many secular individuals. We had conservatives. We had a great turnout from the Democrats for life. It was really great to see. hundred percent. Yeah. I remember seeing, uh, you know, what is it? Progressive uprising against abortion, which is a fascinating new anti-abortion group. They were out there and you're right. You know, you know, when I went over to the other side too, to kind of see what was being said on the pro-abortion side, I was just uh, amazed, uh, you know, because the the folks there not only in many cases look like they're being kind of bussed in or shipped in from, uh, who knows where, uh, to advocate on, on the pro-abortion side of things. But the messaging, right? The messaging isn't isn't any of the things that, you know, you're told it is by the media. It's not inclusive, obviously, by the nature of being pro-abortion. Um, but also just the, the people and the words that you're hearing over and over again um, are coming back to sort of uphold Roe or uphold Casey or uphold abortion uh, because we need it to thrive. It all kind of is an echo of reliance interest. And to me, I know we're going to get into, you know, the arguments in, in the case that day and, and how the justices um, might ultimately decide. But it was surprising to me because it showed, I, I thought, in a really stark way how much the Supreme Court's decisions teach. Right. There's that old idea that the law is pedagogical, right, that that the law is a teacher. Uh, it teaches us what is good and what is bad. And, you know, we all have a little bit of that in our hearts. Right. We have that that, that line of, uh, of, of good and evil in our hearts, as uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, famously said. But but the law does a lot to form us. And so the fact that there are so many people out there on the pro-abortion side basically parroting previous Supreme Court decisions, I'm thinking, you know, if, if I'm on the court or if I'm on the staff of the court, that's something I'm going to be flagging for my justice, right, is to say, look at the impact you're having. This isn't necessarily the case that the culture or the people are having these opinions. This is people who've heard what you have said, what you have taught and now believe that that's the reality when in fact it's it's not right and so all the more important i think is kind of ratcheting up the pressure in this case to say this decision is about the law it's about what's just and it's also about what's right and good to teach the next generation of americans on this critical issue yeah and tom i think you raised some important themes that actually were a part of the oral argument one is that this idea of the political integrity and perception of the judiciary and many of the justices asked about this during oral argument and then the second idea is that women need abortion to succeed in society and of course this is a idea that was first propagated in 1992 in planned parenthood versus casey but the justices really delved into this idea and almost refuted it during oral argument, saying that women don't need abortion maybe now in 2021 or 2022 to be able to succeed in society. Yeah, I like that word propagate. It's such a nice word that really just means made up, doesn't it? 
<laughs> it, it does manufacture exactly. Yeah, that's what we've been talking about this entire season of Life, Liberty, and Law is trying to identify and understand the messages that are coming from the pro-abortion side um, because we need to be able to think through them and think through the logic of them or the, the lack of logic there um, so that we can have a conversation instead of just be angry. Um, and that main, that main one that we've been looking at really is this reliance interest. I mean, how, how offensive and degrading it is to tell women that they must rely on this procedure um, that is lethal and, uh, and devastating. And, and that what that says about women's capability is really just tragic. And it's been something um, that I think could really, really bridge a lot of people's uh, hearts over to the pro-life side. Exactly, Anna Claire. And I think I think you spoke very well about it, especially as young woman, it's very demeaning to say that we need abortion to be able to succeed in society. And actually, Americans United for Life um, recently did some research into this in our brief that we filed in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And we actually found that since 1990, abortion rates, numbers, and ratios have steadily declined on a yearly basis. And yet at the same time, women have succeeded more and more in society. There are now more women-owned businesses, women are participating more in the labor force, and there are more women at law school and med school than there are men. So we see that there is no causation between abortion and women's success, and there's virtually little to no correlation between the two of them. Right, right, and there are so many other factors that have allowed women to flourish in the workplace, um, and they're even, even more amazingly capable to be able to do both and uniquely equipped to do so as our fathers. So let's talk about the article you wrote in particular, one of the many recent articles, Carolyn, but this one is on AUL.org and it's called Pro-Life Legal Analysis of Oral Arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health. And we're going to link to this in the uh, in the show notes. If you could walk us through, we're kind of touching on this organically a little bit. Um, if you walk us through first Mississippi's arguments, in other words, this is the pro-life argument, and then the pro-abortion argument from Jackson Women's Health Organization. Of course. Well, I'm going to back up a step. Um, let's talk about what is at issue here, first of all, is we have Mississippi, and they passed this law saying that after 15 weeks into the pregnancy, you can't have an abortion unless it's a medical emergency or there's a severe fetal disability. And they passed this law so they could protect the health of mothers, the dignity of unborn children, and they also wanted to uphold and support the integrity of the medical profession. And so we have the undue burden standard under Casey, the 1992 decision. And the undue burden standard says that a law is unconstitutional if it has the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking uh, an abortion of a non-viable fetus. And well, this is a problem for Mississippi because as the trial court determined and the Court of Appeals affirmed is that 15 weeks gestation is before viability. So they, they, they thought that this acted as a flat out ban on abortions. Now the case is now before the Supreme Court and the parties are trying to discuss and argue whether or not the Supreme Court should keep Casey's undue burden standard and by the same token, perhaps overrule Roe versus Wade. Now we come to Mississippi so they're trying to argue that we need to get rid of Roe versus Wade. We've had 50 years of it and it has been 50 years too many. So the Constitution, according to Mississippi, is scrupulously neutral on abortion. It neither says there's a right to abortion, nor does it say that you can prohibit abortion, at least on the federal level. And Mississippi argued that times have changed since Casey and especially have changed since Roe versus Wade 50 years ago. 
We now have safe haven laws. There's more access to contraception. And this idea that we have to have a social reliance upon abortion is, is not a very good legal argument. Quite simply, the Supreme Court has overturned very serious constitutional decisions before, and those decisions themselves had a lot of social reliance on them. Now, if we turn then to the abortion clinic, they're trying to argue that we have to follow stare decisis. Now, stare decisis says that we have to stand by things decided. We have to uphold settled precedents. So in this case, they're trying to say Roe versus Wade has been settled for 50 years. It's been the law of the land for nearly 50 years. We, we don't have a compelling reason to get rid of it at this point. Is that women have come to rely upon Roe versus Wade. They need abortion because they've planned their whole lives around you know, having this ability to, to seek an abortion and kill their unborn child. And the abortion clinic is trying to say Roe and Casey were correctly decided. They have this liberty interest and the Supreme Court shouldn't overturn it now. But of course, this was a liberty interest created out of thin air. That's right. So you have the 14th Amendment. It applies against the states. And it says that no state may deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the due process right protects that, that liberty, liberty interest. And in turn, the Supreme Court has said the liberty interest also extends to privacy. And from that privacy right, we're going to extrapolate that further and maybe find this little gray area that we're going to find in abortion rights. And from there, the Supreme Court has said that women have this right to an abortion. Wow. Yeah, it, it really, <laughs> they, they're really stretching there. And I wish, yeah, that's what we're trying to point out here and what Mississippi is trying to point out, obviously. But um, the, the Jackson Women's Health Organization, right, they were supported by the federal U.S. government. So what was that inter exchange like? Was there a lawyer representing Jackson Women's Health and then also a, a federal representative? Yes, exactly. So what, what you have in cases such as these, which are huge blockbuster cases, is you have what are known as amicus curry. That means a friend of the court. And in fact, Americans United for Life was a friend of the court, and we filed two briefs um, yes. discussing our position on this case as well. But we can get to that in a moment. But the United States came in, and they came in on the side of the abortion clinic. And it's usually a momentous occasion when the United States tries to argue in support of, of a party. And they're usually allowed to come in during oral arguments. And we see that in this case, that the United States Solicitor General came in and argued in support of the abortion clinic. So they, they didn't bring up too many new arguments. They, they were repeating this idea of a social and in individual reliance upon abortion. And they also repeated the idea of stare decisis and how the court should just reaffirm Roe versus Wade because it's been the law for the past 50 years. All right. Now, you mentioned the briefs that we filed and the good work we're doing. We need to stop just for a moment as we're coming to the end of December, the end of the calendar year. You know, if you've been listening to Life, Liberty, and Law, especially from the beginning, but even if today is your first episode, that America's Center for Life is a, a public interest nonprofit. We're a 501c3, and it means that all the work we do, unlike the work of Planned Parenthood or other government-supported abortion businesses, uh, relies on the support of, of good and goodwill of Americans all across the country, of, of all ages, backgrounds, and beliefs. That's who supports us and makes our work possible. So... Stop right now as you're listening. We're going to keep talking. We'll be right back into the program. But if you go to aul.org slash give, aul.org slash give, and it's linked in the show notes. So you just scroll right down and tap that link. Check out what America's Center for Life is doing to advance the human right to life and culture, law, and policy. We tell the story on our website, and we invite you to partner with us at this special time of year 
help us to continue the work in the year to come and to continue to advance the right to life, not just in the case of Dobbs, which we're talking about today, um, but it really across the whole across the whole pro-life spectrum. A human right to life uh, exists for the unborn, but it also exists for those who are marginalized, facing things like suicide or euthanasia. Uh, those who need patient protection and need the patient's rights to be upheld at any point in their life. You may have been in this situation yourself. Maybe a loved one has been. Well, we advocate for you. We're there in every state, in every jurisdiction that you need us. Uh, and if you're facing an issue right now, uh, reach out to us. Our email is right on the website, info at AUL.org. Let us know what you need. Let us know the help you need, and, uh, and we'll be an advocate for you. Uh, but again, we really encourage you to partner with us at this time of year. Uh, visit AUL.org, learn how, make a gift, and please reach out and continue listening to Life, Liberty, and Law. All right, Anna Claire, back to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Caroline, let's jump into some of these specific um, questions that were asked by the justices. You've broken them down so well in this article, but start off by giving us a little bit about uh, what Chief Justice John Roberts had to say. Of course. Well, First thing I'll say is Chief Justice Roberts really did his homework and read really well into the amicus briefs here. He actually referenced a lot of things uh, without explicitly referencing them, um, all these facts that were raised in the amicus briefs. For example, this idea of viability came up over and over. Again, Casey's undue burden standard relies upon this arbitrary viability line that women can have this right to pre-viability abortion and that the state cannot place an undue burden in, in front of a woman seeking a pre-viability abortion. And now viability more or less is 24 weeks, but the issue with viability is it's a moving target. It depends upon the individual child and it depends upon medical advances in what's going on in medicine. And so Chief Justice Roberts delved into viability, and one of the most poignant questions he asked was, isn't this idea of viability that was raised in Roe versus Wade, wasn't it just simply dicta? Which means in, in the legal world is that it, it's not precedential, like it's just an extra thing the court threw in there, but it doesn't have any like precedence and like it, the courts don't have to follow it. And he also talked about uh, viability and why we need to keep it. And he, he posed this question to, to both the United States and also to the abortion clinic. And they responded by saying, well, we need viability because that's the point at which the fetus can live outside her mother's womb. And Chief Justice Roberts just interrupted and said, but isn't that simply the definition of viability? It's just a syllogism. It's circular reasoning. Like, do you have another answer? Because it's a logical fallacy. That's that's not a sufficient answer for that. And he drew some of this actually from the briefing um, that was presented before the court. So it was very impressive to see how well he read into the briefing and then incorporated that into his questions. Yeah, that's incredible. Who were some of the other justices that stood out to you? Maybe we don't have to go through each of them, but what were the most maybe surprising questions or points um, that you remember? Of course. So I think I'll jump to Justice Alito. He's one of my personal favorites on the okay. court. So I always love analyzing his arguments and what questions he's posing. But he, he delved into the legal history of abortion. And again, this is something that we saw in the amicus briefs, actually, presented before the court. And he discussed how there is no legal right to abortion, and nor has it, there been a legal right to abortion present in legal history in both the United States and then also farther along in history in the English tradition. And so at the time of the 14th Amendment, when it was adopted, no state constitutional provision recognized that abortion was a right, liberty, or immunity. 
And at the same time, a majority of states actually did not allow abortion um, before quickening when the 14th Amendment was adopted. This idea of quickening has been an under part of, of abortion jurisprudence in discussions. And quickening is just the first signs of fetal movement. I mean, commonly we know that is just like when the baby kicks, you can feel that. That's a sign of quickening. And AKA when people first knew that there was a child present, right? This is what people like, they imply all the time. It's like, oh, well, before quickening, people did it all the time. And it's like before quickening, you didn't know. That was the whole point. Exactly, exactly. And so so what the, the issue with this argument is like up until now, the abortion clinics and many abortion proponents are trying to argue that abortion was legal before quickening. And well, let's well, maybe, maybe between the 14th and 19th century. But the whole thing about quickening is it was an evidentiary standard. It wasn't a moral standard of saying this is when abortion is permissible. Rather, it, it was an evidentiary standard for homicide law. They knew that post-quickening, they could say with legal certainty that this was a double homicide of a pregnant woman and her unborn child. Whereas before quickening, they said they weren't sure whether or not the, this child was actually alive because they didn't know there was a pregnancy there. And again, this is outdated. We're talking the 14th to 19th centuries. And it's completely outdated now because we also have ultrasound technology and early pregnancy tests. So going back to this idea of quickening just shows how the abortion argument is really antiquated. Like it's it's old. It's it's not keeping up with the modern technology. I'm curious if you can walk us through, you know, maybe as a as a, a tag team here, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor and, and Elena Kagan. Uh, I mean, Breyer, you know, you can speak to if you want, but I mean, all, the three of them together kind of held the same position, right? They they want to defend Roe. They want to defend Casey. I don't remember Breyer having really that much to say. Maybe I'm wrong, but um, but it's not the case necessarily for Sotomayor or Kagan, is it? No, I think um, as a general theme between the three of them is they talked about stare decisis, um, and they seem to almost argue the abortion clinic's position for them, saying that we need to you know, uphold stare decisis and we need to follow Roe versus Wade and reaffirm it simply because of stare decisis. The three justices were also concerned, though, about the political perception of the court, saying that what would this look like to the public if we were to now overturn Roe versus Wade after reaffirming it over and over for 50 years? <laughs> Exactly. Right, exactly. yeah. Now they're concerned about the political implications of the court as if they haven't been paying attention to confirmation hearings since the 1990s, right? Exactly. And I think the other issue, too, there is that simply that the judiciary is not a political branch. They, they don't answer to politics, and politics shouldn't be swaying the judiciary. They should be answering to, to the United States Constitution. So I think this, um, this political perception idea of the court is not going to resonate with the originalists on the court. There's no way to say face here. No, there isn't. We also saw a few interesting arguments actually from Justice Sotomayor. Um, interesting in the regard that they're a little bit disturbing. One is she actually asked Mississippi, how is your interest anything but a religious viewpoint? And in, in this question, it really, first of all, was a little derogatory towards religion. But second of all, it just it completely ignored the fact that this is not only a religious viewpoint, it's fundamentally a biological viewpoint, is that you can say at the moment of conception, this is undeniably a human being in pure biological terms. And the other thing that Justice Sotomayor brought up and raised is she asked the question about what medical advancements and technological advancements have we had since 1992, since Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And Mississippi tried to bring up the idea of fetal pain, that we understand that the fetus can feel pain now, and we, we have so much, um, such a better understanding of fetal medicine. 
And just as Sotomayor was very derogatory and dehumanizing towards the unborn children in this instance, she tried to compare the, the fetal pain to the instance of a brain-dead individual who might react to external stimuli if you, you poke or prod their foot. And it, it just it was dehumanizing to see that she would compare an unborn child to essentially a corpse in that instance. No, literally dehumanizing, right? I mean, that's that's what was so shocking about it. You don't need to look at a you know a prominent politician like a Ben Carson or something who's done in utero surgeries, but you know speak to anyone, uh, apolitical, non-political, whatever, uh, who's done those kind of interventions, right? You think of like uh, you know in utero um, surgeries of, of any type, where you know that what that involves is in many cases uh, making an incision. Um, into the mother, uh, into, you know, the, the, uh, the child uh, growing there, pulling the child out a little bit, and then and performing whatever the surgery is that's needed to, to uh, allow for successful continued fetal development and then ultimately delivery. What are you operating on if not a living human being, right? I mean, what is medicine being performed on? Exactly. And and even in that instance, too, um, the neonatal surgeons are using anesthesia for both the mother and for the benefit of the unborn child. So I think, unfortunately, Justice Sotomayor wasn't open to further discussion on this. She simply wanted to put her two cents about when she she believed life began at and um, was just she was trying to make the argument that fetal medicine and fetal pain just wasn't at issue in this case. That is hard to to wrap our minds around, Um, but I, I could see where it really has been something, you know, if you've spent your life defending this in, in a similar way that we feel so strongly um, about what we're saying, you know, you don't you don't want the public's perception to change of the way that you view the unborn. I mean, it, it's, if it becomes unpopular, you become uh, very cruel and uh, very uh, barbaric even. And it's just, yeah, I could, I could see where <laughs> they feel really threatened, um, kind of that, that side of the court. Um, Right. They don't want to be on the wrong side of history, right? They've been saying for how many years that we're on the wrong side of history. Exactly. 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 And And I think um, Justice Kagan actually delved into this a little bit more than even the other two liberal justices. She was trying to say that we have two interests here that are supposedly diametrically opposed. You have a woman's interest in liberty and her her supposed right to bodily autonomy and an abortion. And then on the other side, you have a state's interest in fetal life and an unborn life. And Justice Kagan tried to make the argument, even from the bench, is that wasn't it 50 years ago in Roe versus Wade that we we made the proper balance between these two interests? It's just now that Mississippi and a few other states, or many states as we, we are seeing, that don't like this balance and are trying to push back and further the interest in fetal life. Kind of moving on to maybe Amy Cody Barrett. Um, what were your takeaways from her points? I know she was the one who brought up safe haven laws, um, but, but how, you know, how do you think her voice on the court has helped the pro-life movement or how has she represented um, this, this position since her confirmation? I think she was a great advocate for adoption, first of all, on the bench um, as an adoptive mother herself. She brought up safe haven laws. Um, Some people know these as baby Moses laws. But what it says is that a few days after birth, uh, you can relinquish your parental rights and also duties by giving up your child uh, in a manner that is safe for the child. And it depends state by state, you know, in what manner you can do this. But every state now has one of these laws in the books. And we only have received safe haven laws in the past 20 years. So this is something that is after Casey that has come into being. 
And Justice Spirit was trying to delve into the idea of safe haven laws because here the abortion clinic has tried to propose two interests. They're saying they don't want women to have to carry this pregnancy, which is one interest. But the second thing is like post-birth, woman can't have this child because she wants to succeed socially and economically and professionally. Now, Justice Barrett delved into this asking if we have these safe haven laws on the books, isn't your second interest really invalid because you can give up your child to a loving adoptive family and you don't have to actually parent the child. So isn't your interest only in the first thing of just not carrying this pregnancy to term? Yeah, and it's it's so impactful for her to be an example of a loving family who has accepted um, adopted children into her home. And I think, you know, a lot of the critique from uh, from pro-abortion individuals is, okay, you're not whole life pro-life. You're just pro-birth. You're just pro-birth. And this is something that obviously we know there's room for improvement. We know that the foster care system is, is full of uh, brokenness. The adoption system is, is full of loopholes and um, hoops to jump through, but this is this is where we can really camp out and say, we are working on all sides of this issue, and we are opening our homes, we are opening um, our families, we are we are loving our neighbors in this way, and that's something that individually we've got to get on board with if we're going to say we're pro-life, right? If we're going to be opposed to um, Roe and Casey, but I just think it was so powerful for her to bring that up. And I do think there is a little bit more awareness within the movement. Uh, We've got to really back up what we're saying with our actions. Do you think so? I definitely think so. And I think that raises the importance of pregnancy resource centers who are on the ground day after day helping these women who are in need and allowing these women just to feel like they have the social support that they that they need to be able to carry this child to term and either give her up for adoption or even keep this child and have the resources and the social support necessary to be able to parent her child. All right, now let's talk about uh, what did Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have to say? I, I asked about them together because I remember at the Supreme Court rally two years ago about a different abortion case, June Medical Services. It was, uh, you know, then uh, minority leader Chuck Schumer who infamously threatened uh, the Supreme Court members at the time, uh, saying that if they didn't vote uh, in favor of abortion in that case, that, uh, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, he named them uh, ex- explicitly. Uh, would would uh, have a whirlwind to bear, uh, and he was later repudiated by by Chief Justice John Roberts. But tell us what did what did this tag team Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have to say? Yeah, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh really provided a rebuttal to this idea that we need to uh, reaffirm under stare decisis Roe versus Wade, and they discussed how you know, um, stare decisis is not this inexorable command; is that you can overrule cases in certain instances, and perhaps this case does present the right instance for overruling Roe versus Wade. So Justice Gorsuch, in fact, pointed out that Casey itself didn't follow stare decisis. It overruled Roe's trimester framework and then instituted this nearly unheard of undue burden standard in 1992. Justice Kavanaugh also listed many cases that were very influential in the American legal tradition that overruled previous precedents that we had reaffirmed then under stare decisis. So we're seeing that maybe this case right now is the right one to overturn Roe versus Wade. Yeah, it's it's it really could be it. And um, we we are going to be working on this moving forward into 2022. And um, 
what I would, I'm just curious, as, as you work with the legal team at AUL, Steve and Katie and everybody, I mean, what are the main priorities of your team going forward? Well, I think our number one focus going forward is we have the spring 2022 legislative session coming up and Katie is our government affairs counsel. So she's leading the charge on that one. And our goal is simply just to pass as many pro-life laws as we can is this is becoming even more necessary as Roe versus Wade may you know, meet its final demise um, after a long awaited 50 years is we need to make sure the states are ready and have these support systems to first protect maternal life, but also protect the dignity of the unborn children. And at the same time, our other pressing goal, like we mentioned before, is we need to support pregnancy resource centers. Is if we are overturning Roe versus Wade, we need to make sure we have this very uh, realistic option for women, that they have a real option, an alternative to abortion, and they can find that through pregnancy resource centers. And this was something I think that Justice Thomas spoke to, at least in a, in a roundabout way, right, in terms of, of his comments on the case. And Thomas, I mean, is, is the most, uh, can we say, pro-life justice, uh, at least in terms of being willing to observe uh, certain realities about the Constitution that others aren't. But I mean, what did, what did Thomas have to say uh, as we kind of wrap up the roundtable on these? Of course. So Justice Thomas, um, he, he's very explicit about what he thinks of the Constitution. I believe in June Medical Services, he said that a woman does not have the right to kill her unborn child. And he said it in those exact terms, whereas some of the other justices have hedged and repeated row that, okay, it's this Awkward. right to terminate a pregnancy. Exactly. But Justice Thomas really was grilling Mississippi and, or sorry, grilling the abortion clinic and also the United States, asking where is this right located? Is The Constitution doesn't say that there, there's this right to an abortion. Where is it? And of course, in response, they replied, well, this, it's this right of bodily autonomy. It's a, right, a liberty right. And they, they go on and on. And Justice Thomas simply said that you have these other rights that you've mentioned. You have the right to same-sex marriage that the Supreme Court has recognized. You have the right to parenting that we see from the 1920s cases. And, but abortion is the only constitutional right that the Supreme Court has recognized that involves the taking of a human life. And so perhaps that is different in this regard. And Justice Thomas wanted, I think, wanted to distinguish this because he's primed and ready to overturn Roe versus Wade and just say that even though we have these other substantive due process rights, abortion shouldn't be enumerated among them. Yeah. And what's amazing, I think, too, is I, I look back and I think, you know, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, of course, is no longer on the court. Um, but his infamous, you know, mystery passage right from Planned Parenthood v. Casey uh, just stands out to me. And I think in the context of all of this, all the different justices uh, making their observations, asking their questions, trying to figure out, you know, what, what, is the, what are the best arguments that are there uh, for the Jack's women's health, for the pro-abortion side? What are the best arguments uh, and, 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 and weakest arguments for both sides? But all this is happening in the context of, uh, let's say, uh, a political philosophy uh, that has defined the court, at least did define the court under Justice Anthony Kennedy, uh, and so many of the cases, abortion at the top of them um, being shaped by this mystery passage. And, and the, the key sentence from that in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, you know, is, quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So I think in that context, you know, uh, of course, this is a, a passage that's been pilloried, uh, mocked, 
um, you know, criticized by many people in the, in the, you know, 30 some years since it's, it's come out, since it was written. Um, but to the extent that this philosophy does guide legal thinking, judicial thinking, the thinking of lawmakers on the state level or the federal level, um, I think it's, it's opened up sort of Pandora's box, hasn't it, Caroline? I mean, in a context where the judiciary, uh, you know, it's itself as a supposedly non-political branch, um, at the highest level, the Supreme Court in the nation's capital has had uh, one of its key voices say that liberty means defining your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. If that's the case, right, philosophically and then practically in the law, if everyone's liberty depends on their own conception and definition of reality itself, what then can the law do actually that isn't inherently an infringement upon liberty, right? Because the law exists to create norms, to tell us what's right and wrong, good and bad, right? Uh, and so whether it's, you know, tax laws or whether it's something about, you know, the constitutional right to life, it seems that if, if that passage still is going to govern Supreme Court thinking in future cases on abortion, uh, you know, that, that the court is sort of philosophically, intellectually uh, cutting their knees out from under them, right? How do, you, how do you stand if that phrase governs thinking? Exactly. It really runs counterintuitive just the, to the idea of a rule of law is that if each individual is defining their own existence and then we're making this the law is we're having each person's own law is that's not how our system of American government was founded upon As we have the Constitution. We have enumerated rights and they're in the federal Constitution and anything not in there is reserved to the states. And which is why Mississippi in this case is simply saying the Constitution doesn't provide for a right to abortion and neither does it prohibit abortion. We need to leave this to the democratic process because the judiciary shouldn't be making these philosophical answers to these questions. It should be left to the democratic process and the political process. Yeah, and so long as the court continues to do this, right, there's, there's no end to it. The concern, rightly, uh, about is the judiciary seen as too political, the only way out of that uh, is, is to reject Roe and Casey. The only way out is to repudiate it, to reverse those cases, and to protect human life, ultimately. There's no other way to, to you know, resolve the political problem. Uh, all the heat, all the energy, all the fire has come from the decision of the court, and I think only the court can undo it. Uh, that's my perspective. Yeah, and I love that Justice Thomas is seen as the justice that's really the most loyal to the Constitution, and he's, you know, he's so pro-life. And I think that speaks really loudly um, and should be a little bit more valued among our our society. I mean, the likes of Scalia, I mean, it, it, we just, a lot of these problems could be solved by taking an approach similar to his. 100%, right, Anna Claire? And I think of like, uh, you know, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, was was you know not not just because she you know had her her friendship or public friendship with um, with Justice Scalia, but you know also because she like Scalia like like maybe earlier justices pre pre political in our current environment were willing to be open about what they saw as the strengths and weaknesses. Right, Ginsburg criticized Roe, the basis upon which uh, abortion was created was manufactured as if it were a right. Um, she thought it wasn't well done. She, she liked the outcome, right? But she didn't like the process or the intellectual basis for it. She saw the weaknesses of it. And I think that's, that's different markedly. I haven't seen anything like that from 
from Breyer or from uh, Sonia Sotomayor or Kagan, you know, people who seem to be more politically partisan uh, versus exactly that, right? People like Justice Thomas who are willing to speak the truth, even in ways that, you know, calling abortion uh, a crime, calling it murder, these kind of things, you know, that those are, are blunt truths that uh, that are good for his colleagues to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Carolyn, thanks for your diligence to break down all of these arguments. Um, I think we've almost covered everyone at this point, at least briefly. And if anyone of our listeners wants to learn more, you can visit our website to see the full article. Um, She broke down each side's arguments, each party's arguments, and all of the justices' questions and and concerns that they raised. So um, looking forward, I mean, we talked a little bit about how you're kicking off 2022. Um, But looking back for a moment, we like to end every episode with a shot of gratitude. Um, And so we'd love to hear from you, Carolyn, about something that you're grateful for today. I think I'm grateful for my family, especially as we're going into Christmas, at least as of when this was recorded, is I'm very grateful for my family. And I just I can't wait to take a few days off and go spend time with my family during Christmas. Yeah, that's right. Tom, what about you? You go first, Anna Claire. I'll, I'll okay, ask you. Okay. Anna Claire, Carolyn, what's something you're grateful for? Carolyn, I'm right there with you. I am. Um, we are recording this right before Christmas, and um, it's going to be just great to be back with family um, after after a long year and family living in all different places. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to slow down just a little bit, um, spend some time at our. Uh, our farmland with my dad working on things and it's just a, it's just a special time of year that's awesome yeah Anna Claire Caroline I'm grateful to have this conversation today grateful to go into the year end uh, you heard my my plug for giving and for support and standing alongside American Center for Life which can happen with a financial gift or just with signing up over email but what I'm grateful for uh, and and what all of us at American Center for Life are grateful for right now is all of the time and energy you brought uh, to this mission and to this work, Anna Claire. I know this will probably be the last episode, at least for a while, uh, you know, for now, for your affiliation with America's Center for Life as communications associate. But we're so thrilled to have worked with you and, and excited to see uh, where you go next. Thank you so much, Tom. It has been such a fun summer and fall working with AUL. And um, I am still a student and hoping to continue my education. So I am going to be a little bit busy with that, but I'm definitely going to be around and hopefully adding my own um, scholarship and ideas to the pro-life movement uh, here in the next few years. And I will definitely, definitely be back on the show. So thank you all so much to all our listeners and um, just for letting me be part of it. It's really special. 100%. Thanks again, Anna Claire. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Carolyn, for, for being here with us today and, and all your great work this year. Thanks, Anna Claire, and thank you so much for everything you've done. Friends, if you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review wherever you listen, and tell a friend about us. We want as many people as possible to hear about our work of advancing the human right to life. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please drop us an email at life at AUL.org. I'm Anna Claire Novlet, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law and Supporting Americans United for Life. Happy New Year.